Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're taking a listen back to one of our favourite interviews with the award-winning actor, Brian Cox. You'll most likely know Brian for playing the role of Logan Roy in the award-winning drama series Succession. Or perhaps you're more familiar with some of his early work. As an accomplished Shakespearean actor, Brian has featured in countless plays, from Titus Adronicus to King Lear. But his childhood seems a world away from the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Growing up in Dundee, Brian's family lived in the shadows of World War II, working hard to make ends meet, which not only brought financial burdens, but had huge repercussions on his family's mental health. In this interview, Brian bears all on his experiences growing up in poverty after his father died when he was eight, and shares how witnessing his mother's attempted suicide made him know he could survive anything. What do you remember from speaking to him, Alex? I think the first thing I remember was that he said he always carried a picture of himself as a child and it was that throwback that he had such a difficult childhood he wanted to remember where he came from and that goes for succession or King Lear or anywhere, that, that sense of vulnerability. Um, and I think that that he told us that he actually had a blissful childhood at the beginning in Dundee. I think he really enjoyed it. He was youngest of a big family, adored his dad. I think his mother was very unstable but somehow was also very kind and loving. And then... It all suddenly goes wrong. His father dies within three weeks of pancreatic cancer. He's not allowed to go to the funeral. I remember him being devastated as a child that he couldn't, so he didn't have any sort of closure. So I think those are the memories. And I remember as well him saying that he's still a hoarder, that he's got a bigger cupboard than his wife in New York because once you've lost everything, you never want to let Mm. go of anything, that he's just constantly accumulating clothes. He's just not going to be a victim. And he said, in fact, he tells drama students that you should always carry a photograph of yourself to remind yourself of where you come from. And he draws on it when he's acting all the time to give him sort of emotional depth. 
but also not to be trapped mm. by your childhood, not to be trapped by your background. You can, from anywhere, get to the red carpet. Mm. I thought that sense when he talked about you've just got to keep going. So he talks about all these awful things that happened and he, when he discovers that his you know, mother was trying to commit suicide when he was a child and she'd put her head in the oven and then he, she stopped, but it was obvious what she was doing and all that real... It was just a really, really difficult, struggling childhood and she went into hospital and you know, she had this psychosis and that he then said, move on, don't dwell, keep going. She was there and uh, I came home and I could... I could smell gas, and she was on her knees, um, and the, the, the oven was was open, and and she she was she said, "Well, I'm just giving it a wee clean." <laughs> I'm giving it a wee clean. I said, "There's a smell of gas, ma." She said, "Oh, I must have knocked one of the gases." And I mean, I only realised in hindsight that it was a suicide attempt. Yeah. Um, but then she. She really got very ill, and they took her away. They took her to uh, Lyft, the hospital at Lyft. Um, there was two hospitals, and there was an insane asylum, and then there was a hospital for nervous diseases. And they took her there, and they gave her electric shock treatment, which was pretty awful, really. It's clear that Brian lived a mostly unstable, impoverished childhood, and yet when he reflects on it, there are these sad moments, but there's no anger or resentment about it. And when his father died of pancreatic cancer, I think Brian was so young, but he was so aware of how his father had been part of the community, being very successful, and he'd owned a shop, and he was a very big character, and 300 people came to his funeral, but Brian was the only one who didn't come. And but he knew that people were really worried about him, that this small little child, that they, they realised that his life was going to become very difficult. It was only after Brian's father's death that his family discovered that he had just £10 in his bank account. Brian shares that there were a few times where they didn't have any money left by the end of the week for food. Ah, uh, oh gosh. My mother would get a pension on a, on a widow's pension on a Friday and uh, we'd probably have no money on the Thursday and we had no... It didn't happen all the time, but a couple of times. We didn't have any food. So I would go to the local fish and chip shop and ask for batter bits from the back of the pan or the thing, and he would wrap up the batter bits, and I'd get the batter bits, and that would be our tea <laughs> on a Thursday night. It was one, two traumatic times when it happened. Despite this hardship that Brown faced as a child from death and attempted suicide and poverty, he knows that without these experiences, he may have sort of lacked the courage to give life a try and to keep going and to go to drama school. And, you know, he went, you know, literally from this sort of really, really tough times to, to becoming probably one of the most successful actors of our generation, certainly after succession, almost the best known actor at the moment. So it is phenomenal. And I think he realises that in some ways. And, and we come back to that word lucky, but he does feel that he's unbelievably lucky. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, actor Brian Cox tells us his story of how the challenges he faced in his early years gave him the determination to succeed on stage and screen. And we met Brian just as we were about to go into lockdown for the first time when London was closing down and he was in his home in Primrose Hill. And surrounded by all these accolades and photos of all his family and of his performances, Brian then reflected on the roles he'd played throughout his acting career really calmly as London was sort of, you know, emptying. It's more how they're drawn to me than I'm drawn to them. Um, I seem to have um, a penchant for authority <laughs> or authority figures. I, 
I, I, I really don't feel that's who I am at all. In fact, I feel I'm quite the opposite to these figures I play. I'm fascinated, of course, by that kind of male dying patriarchy, really. Um, and I do see it as dying, and it's about bloody time it died, quite frankly, because of the mess we've made of stuff. I'm talking about males. And so I play these characters who are almost diametrically opposed to who I am as a person. Um, and uh, it's fascinating because you know, they, they, they always say the devil has the best songs. And so that's one of the appeals of playing somebody like Logan Roy. But, they, but also it's more than that because, I mean, for instance, playing Hermann Goring, I had to give him a point of view. And I had discovered that the man did have a point of view. He had a very clear point of view, actually, about Germany and about what would happen. This was before the Holocaust, before all of that. But what he had seen and what he did at his trial was he defended National Socialism because he said, as he rightly said, you know, the Treaty of Versailles was extremely uh, punishing and punishing to Germany. And he rallied he saw this young Austrian lad, this painter who came along, and he put all his faith in him. Now, of course, we know that that was not a great thing, and we know that man was not a great man. He was Hitler. But at the same time, it's fascinating to understand how people are motivated in times of crisis. So it's kind of interesting what that man is. You suddenly get a perspective that the, the media doesn't give you. And... And documentaries don't give you because they just show you, as it were, the facts. And the facts are not always the entire story. Uh, so do you think you want people to understand or even empathise with these often quite I want, I want them to understand. Uh, yeah, empathy, I, I, I certainly don't want sympathy, but I want them to understand that really um, the, the terrible thing is they're all human beings. And you have to admit that the human experiment is rather disappointing. Mm -hmm. But with Logan Roy, it's even more interesting in some ways because they're parallels with your own life, aren't they? He's very different from you, but he grew up in Dundee. He did. He's but that was a decision they sons. made when we'd start. We'd already started the show. So I that mean, was by chance? No, it wasn't by chance. They suddenly decided. I was born in Quebec in the originals. And then they did an ADR session where they dubbed over the fact that they, and they made me... They decided he came from Dundee. Now, this was the writer's decision. It wasn't my decision. I had suggested playing the part Scots to start with. And Jesse Armstrong was very against that. I said, oh, no, 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 he's got to be American. He's got to be American. So I was playing an American, albeit in the, you know, in the first episode, I was born in Quebec. <laughs> and they had this whole birthday celebration, born in Quebec, Canada. And then in the ninth episode of the first series, Peter Friedman, who played the, the guy who actually honoured me at the birthday dinner, said, you know, they've changed your birthplace. And I said, what do you mean they've changed my birthplace? He said, you're no longer born in Quebec. I said, so where am I born? He said, well, I don't know. He said, I can't remember. He said, oh, hang on. And he looked at his device, his iPod, iPad, and he went, oh, oh, look, you were born in somewhere called Dundee, Scotland. <laughs> and I said, but that's where I'm from. <laughs> So what is the idea? He said, I don't know. I'm just the actor. I don't know. And so I went up to Jesse. I said, so what? He said, oh, yeah. And the, old, the writers looked and chuckled and said, we thought it'd be a bit of a surprise. I said, it's a hell of a surprise. Mm. I've been playing this part for nine episodes, thinking that he's <laughs> coming from somewhere. And 
He said, well, you know, he was born and then he came, he was part of a sort of, and there was a kind of kinder transport, of, a transport thing of, of kids who went to Canada at the beginning of the war. So that's what happened to me. So you were born in 1946, I, I think. I was. Well, was and he's older than me. <laughs> what was Dundee like then? It was the year after the war. It must have been Well, it was pretty very different. It was pretty grey. It, um, it was very much in the shadow of the war. There was... Um, I mean, there was this... We still had a sense of celebration uh, in uh, New Year, uh, Hogmanay. My dad used to put me on the coal bunker at home which was in the window recess, and that was my first stage, and I would do Al Jolson impersonations mm. when I was about two and a half. Ah. And my dad was, I had a, he was a lovely man, my father, but he died when I was, well, I, I was eight when he passed away, and then, and then everything hit the fan. I mean, it was blissful up until a certain point, and then it all went belly up. You know. Could you remember doing things with your father then like that? I do. I remember I remember following my father. I remember getting lost when I was three and I messed my pants and ended up at the police station. But I, because I, I sort of probably, had, well, I did adore my father. So, and he was kind of mythic. So I followed him one day to his work, except I got lost, horribly lost, and I was missing for a whole day. And eventually, and then my parents were going nuts, and eventually they found me in the police station. He was, um, he had a small shop. He had two, actually. He had one started in, in a place called Charles Street in Dundee, and ironically, his name was Charles Chick. And what happened was that um, he bec his shop became the hub of the community, and it was a... You know, pretty working class, pretty poor um, families, uh, families in transit. And this was before the housing schemes were developed. So there were people who were living locally and there were, you know, quite a lot of them were unemployed. I mean, my hometown was an interesting hometown because Dundee was ostensibly, well, in the 19th century, when my people, because my folks all came from Ireland, they all came from a place outside in the Skillen called Largy. And they all came to, and it was the women. There was nothing for the men. And it was just uh, the famine and the Industrial Revolution. It's, I always think it's so weird that they all happened at the same time because the famine released the Irish workforce. So you had people coming across and working in the cotton mills. And most of these Irish women could spin and they could weave. And my, my great-great-grandmother was... She was a spinner and a weaver. And they came to work in the jute mills of Dundee. And jute was an interesting thing. It's, it's from, it comes from um, the Bengal area of, uh, of India. And it's a small, it's like sisal. It's actually what rope is. But it, it was, you could only get it in small lengths. But they discovered, and this was the other thing about Dundee, Dundee was a whaling town. So they discovered by dipping the jute in whale oil, they could extend it. And, it, and they built these huge, huge machines. I mean, vast machines. And my, my family, my uh, my relations, um, they came the women, as I say, to work. The men were known as kettle boilers, which meant that's what they did because they had no work. So, eighty percent of the working population of in Dundee were women, uh, predominantly Catholic women, uh, in a fairly Protestant city. And they were, so there was this matriarchal tradition, which was very powerful. 
And really, um, I think it was something that, I mean, that's what I've always been aware of because of my sisters and my mom and I had an auntie Zili. My mom was very, very ill when I was born. She practically died. I mean, I she had to have a, apparently I, when I came into the world, I took most of her womb with me. I brought most of it with me. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I had the cord wrapped around my neck. I was, I was, I was a double breech, apparently, whatever that is. And so, <laughs> so I caused my mom considerable agony. And my auntie Zili, who was French, and she'd just been repatriated after the war. And she was living with us because my uncle Tom, who <laughs> he was a fascinating character. He was a masseuse, but he worked for a French football team <laughs> and they got cut off. Uh, the team got cut off and he ended up, couldn't get home. Everybody said, well, you, there's no way you have to jump on a boat. So he, from his team, you know, they, they went on a boat to in Dunkirk. And were you treated differently because you were the only boy and you had sisters? Well, I wasn't the only boy. I was. I had a brother, but my brother was wacky. I mean, he was he was kind of a wild kid. My brother, and in a way, um, my mother and him had a kind of very violent relationship. I mean, he was very. My mum was quite. She could be quite tough <laughs> to say the least. Not with me. She was never because she was too ill by the time I came. But she was, you know, she'd give my brother a bit of a run around. But I had these three sisters, all of which are, well, my eldest sister was is about to be 90, and my second eldest sister will be 89, and my third eldest sister is 85. So I have these, I had these women, uh, which was fantastic what happened. And what happened was that my dad had a shop, as I say, and... Uh, it was a shop in uh, in this part of Dundee called Charles Street, and he really served the community wonderfully. But he also gave a lot of credit, so there was what was known as tick, and uh, and people didn't pay their bills, and of course he he died within three weeks of his diagnosis. Uh, he had what pancreatic he cancer, mm -hmm. and he was dead within three weeks. So that really affected my mom. Well, my mum was, she had not been well for a long time, really since I was born. So for the first seven years of my, my, my aunt Izzili was around, certainly wasn't until I was about four. And then my mum was there, but she was, she was always not quite present. And at one point she actually ran away. I think she had a, I think she was going through a very long, but this is even before my father's death, but I think she was really finding, because she was a very bright woman, my mother, and she was very imaginative, but... I think she really didn't know how to, she didn't have the right means or route to express what she wanted to express. I also think, I suspect that she was bisexual. I uh, I think she was. Why uh, do you think that? Because there was a woman she had a relationship with. I mean, it wasn't, it was not a physical relationship, but it was a woman that she spent a lot of time with. And I think, I I don't know. I, I, as I've got older, I've, I've seen it as a... I mean, it's very... In a kind of working-class situation, it would be almost impossible to express. Do you remember when you were told your father had died? Yeah, I remember it vividly. I was... Uh, I came home from school. It was a Friday afternoon. It was March the 11th, 1955. So we've just celebrated his 65th... Well, not celebrated, but we just... 
had his 65th anniversary. And I came home from school and uh, I walked up the stair and we lived in a close and our apartment was on the first floor. And I came in the close and I, and there was a lovely old woman had goiter. She used to wear a scarf, very old. She was called Mrs. Robbie. And she was standing there and she was crying. And uh, she said, I remember she said to me, oh, Brian, 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 oh, poor wee Brian. I remember that's what she said to me. And I thought, oh. And then I went up the stair and my front door was open. And I remember, of course, as always in times of incredible crisis and stress, the table was packed with food. I remember I, I just, there was food and cake and everything all over. And my mother, I could see her head just above the table. She was sitting hunched on an armchair by the, by the, by the, the fireplace. And um, she looked at me and she, she burst into tears. And, you know, and then I realized my dad had gone. And it, it had been very sudden. And I was immediately whisked away. I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't, I didn't go to his funeral. I went to, I was put in front of a television. <laughs> um, my, my cousin, one of my cousin's place in, up in Clipperton Road in Dundee. And I was, of course, I was in front of this television for, you know, as, a, as my solace. Would you really regret not going to the funeral? I, yeah, I, probably. I don't know, it's very funny, it sort of marked me in a way. I'm, I kind of avoid, I mean, I do go to funerals, I've been going to a lot of funerals recently because I'm at an age where people are popping their clogs left, right and centre. Uh, you know, I, I don't mind funerals. Um, I probably do regret that I didn't go to my father's funeral, but I actually was, but there was also a part of me which was cared for. You know, I was, somebody was taking care of me, you know, saying, you know, just this, because I would be, I would be at the funeral and I'd be the young, because everybody was so much older than me, my sisters and my brother, my brother, he was 16 and he, I always think my brother had it far worse than I did. You know, everybody said, oh, poor Brian, poor Brian, but I think, my brother immediately ran away to the army and joined, which he didn't have to do, you see, because my father had a business and he could have took over the business. So what happened was that after the funeral and everything had died down, we discovered that my father had no money. He had nothing. He had 10 pounds in the bank uh, and he, we found his, we got his bank book because, you know, the credit that he'd extended to people came back on him. So he was, and he'd probably been in that, and that probably exacerbated his health condition because he'd been in that situation probably for some couple of years. I mean, he did very well out of the war. He had, in fact, we, he, 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 he wasn't a businessman, my dad. He was a bit of a dreamer for that. He, he wasn't a businessman at all. So he, he then, um, what happened was he, he got involved with some people with building and he put some money into building and he lost it. And my mother, because that's what I always remember because my mother always, her great thing to me was just remember, Brian, charity begins at home, you know. And uh, I wasn't in, you know, and it was, it was pretty bleak, really. So what did your mum do? Well, my mum, uh, she tried to uh, run the shop to my brother-in-law's 
came to help. And then my oldest uh, sister's husband, Dave, came and helped as well. But my mother never liked him. So there was always a problem. And she was, she got quite paranoid and she was really quite ill. She wasn't mentally well. And, and eventually she did, um, <laughs> she did try to commit suicide. And, uh, Were you there when it happened? Yeah, I was. Where, where was it? Was it at home? I, it was at home. I came home. We used to have this tiny scullery. Uh, my mother one time had, and my brother had, was fooling around. She'd hit a chip pan and chip fat went all over, burnt her arm very, very severely. And I remember that we were all fascinated by this huge meringue she had on her arm. This was years before, or it was only a couple of years before. But she was she was there, and uh, I came home, and I could I could smell gas, and she was on her knees. The oven was was open, and and she she was she said. Well, I'm just giving it a wee clean. <laughs> I'm giving it a wee clean. I said, there's a smell of gas, Ma. She said, oh, I must have knocked one of the gases. I, oh, I saw it. And anyway, she... So what did you do? Well, I didn't know what it was. No. I mean, I only realised in hindsight that it was a suicide attempt. Yeah. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Brian Cox. My mother, she really got very ill, and they took her away. And uh, Did you remember that, her taking oh, yeah, taken away? Yeah, I remember that. I mean, it was not good. Where did but they take her? They took her to uh, Lyft, the hospital at Lyft. Um, there was two hospitals, and there was an insane asylum, and then there was a hospital for nervous diseases. And they took her there, and they gave her electric shock treatment, which was pretty awful, really. Were you allowed to go and see her at all? Yeah, yeah, I went to see her. Did she change after the election? Oh, yeah. She was, you know, she was a... I think I've got a photograph of her somewhere. I do, somewhere. Here, some, I know it's somewhere. I'll find it in a minute. Um, yeah, she was quite, you know, she was quite large, and then she became very, very little, you know, very small. Uh, she was only about 4 foot 11. And how did the electric shock therapy affect her? Well, it destroyed most of her memory. I mean, she really couldn't remember anything, and it was there to to destroy memory, um, that which was painful. Uh, 
it's been reintroduced. I mean, it's a, it's a drastic treatment. Um, very drastic. I mean, I'm not sure about it at all. But it certainly affected my ma. She was not, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't right. She was never right. She never, she never really, I mean, she, she became very eccentric and very funny. I mean, she was very, very funny, my mom, she used to. And she was very innocent too. There was a sort of innocence about her. <laughs> and did you constantly feel the need to protect her then? Yeah, I did. But she was also tough. I mean, there was a, there was a, a res I mean, she was the eldest child of a pretty brutal father who was an alcoholic. So she, her survival mechanism was quite, and she'd gone to Canada. Actually, ironically, when she was a young girl, she went into service. Uh, she'd met my father. They met at a, at a, <laughs> they met in Montrose. Uh, in those days, it was strictly not on for uh, couples who had lost parents to be seen uh, enjoying themselves. So if they wanted to dance, they would go up to Montrose, which was just a few miles outside the town. And, and my father was wearing one of those black bands because he had lost his father and she had just lost, they both lost their fathers within months of one another. And my mother, my mother actually asked my father to dance and that was how it all started. So when she was in the hospital, who looked after you? Well, that's hard to say. I I had Betty, I mean, my sister Betty, kind of, I, well, my sister Irene, first of all, was there. Yeah, she was there. And, yeah, my sister Irene. But then my sisters, my, uh, my both my sister, both my older sisters were very good about, Irene was supposed to be emigrating to Canada. And so they, uh, they really took it upon themselves to make sure that she did go. So at the age of 21, and I would have been about 11 then, 10 actually, she, she went to Canada. One of my sisters moved back up to Scotland for a brief time. And my they, they said, well, okay, Irene, you, you go, you go. And she did. I mean, I'd left her a merry dance because I used to, <laughs> I was constantly going, I was constantly being locked in cinemas till four o'clock in the morning <laughs> and breaking out of cinemas and my sister would be going nuts wondering where the hell I was and saying, where have you been? And this day, I, I went to see I went to see Giant at the Greens Playhouse in Dundee. I went there, I, I played truant, I used to play terrible truant on school. So I played truant, I went and sat through three performances. I must have fallen asleep. So I woke up in a darkened cinema at four o'clock in the morning and I, I broke out of the cinema and rang on the high street past the, the TARDIS, the police box, and there was a voice said, where are you going, laddie? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I've just, I, was, I was locked. Where have you been? I was locked in the, where have you been? I, I was locked in the cinema, I couldn't get out. So I, I found the door and I opened, I, well, we'll have to take a look at you. So <laughs> they came out and they took me home and my sister was going nuts because <laughs> I was missing. But eventually she went to Canada, so she was relieved of all of that. It must so, be rather wonderful to go into the cinemas, though, and just watch films. Oh, yeah, I used to do that all the time. I mean, was that, that your escape? Then? That was my babysitter. Mm. You know, I spent, you know, I used to go to the cinema. Well, in those days, it was uh, double features. And you'd go in at six, and you'd come out at 11. And then where I lived, I mean, in my hometown, at one time, there were 21 cinemas. And where we lived in, in Brown Constable Street, Arthurstone Terrace, which was sort of at right angles to where we lived, was my church my library, the Broadway, 
on one side and on the other side, the Royal. So there was a Broadway cinema, the Royal, and they had programs three days a week. Uh, uh, yeah, they changed programs three days a week. So you could see as many as eight movies in a week. Mm. It's great. Um, but what did you eat? How did you live? How did you get money? Uh, how did I live? It's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I depend on... I, I had a lot of aunties, you know. Not aunties, sort of... Yeah, there were aunties. Well, actually, there were cousins. Because my dad was the youngest of 13. And his sister, who had actually given him the shop initially was 25 years older than him. So he had, he, had, he had nieces and nephews who were actually more like cousins, but they were nieces and nephews. And there was one woman, there was the Carol, there was Bella McAdams and Lizzie Carol, Lizzie McAdams who became, and they used to, you know, I used to go around there and spend time with them. And then, you know, and my sister would look out for me. I was, I mean, I stayed at my sister's house my sister Betty's house, well, house, it was a flat. It was actually a two-bedroom flat with five others and two toilets on the stair. That we, You know, that was it. And I had to sleep with my uh, my nephews, who were only eight years younger than me. And, uh, and that was, you know, it was okay, but they slept in the front room and we slept in the back room, and it was difficult. It was smaller even than where I'd lived in Brown-Constable Street. Did you ever go hungry? No, I mean we did, we did have a couple of times when I had to. Ah, uh, oh gosh, we had a couple of times when I had to. Um, my mother would get a pension on a on a widow's pension on a Friday, and uh, we'd probably have no money on the Thursday, and we had no. It didn't happen all the time, but a couple of times, we didn't have any food. So I would go to the local fish and chip shop and ask for batter bits from the back of the pan of the thing, and he would wrap up the batter bits, and I'd get the batter bits, and that would be our tea <laughs> on a Thursday night. That didn't happen all the time, but it was one, two traumatic times when it happened. She took care of me. She looked was out Was there any me. sense of shame at all about your mother being in hospital? And no, not at, none at all. None at all. No, it was just... I think, I, I, I think they realise, you know, my mother would, you know, did give my father a bit of a hard time. But that was because she wasn't well, I think. And my father tried to do the best for her. And it was just the war, they'd done well, they'd made some money, but everything had gone wrong, you know, and people were not paying their bills. And, and it was, you know, it was rationing, it was... You know, not a good time. They're, and in a sense, though, do you feel the, the community brought you together more than, say, now when you'd probably have counselling or... Yeah, I mean, the community, you know, you know, you know, we were very close-knit in that way. Um, you know, and you noticed it in New Year. And my dad, people loved my dad. My dad was... I mean, I mean, someone like... I think it was over nearly 300 people came to his funeral. Uh, I don't know because I wasn't there, but but he was very he was very loving man. I mean, he was a he really was. He was a very sweet sweet guy, and um, you know everybody loved him. I mean, he was he was an incredibly loved man and a generous man. As I say, generous to a fault. Apart my mother, my mother, and that was what my mother she had to live with this star, you know, in a way. And I think. She was partly jealous, 
and her nose was at a joint. And also she, I think she imagined all kinds of things about him, you know. But my auntie Zeely, who was French, and uh, you know, I think my mum thought she was a bit nervous of my auntie Zeely. So, you know, that kind of, you know, that sort of all contributed in one way or another. But my, you know, my dad was, he adored my mum. I mean, he loved her the bits. But he was very disappointed at the end that she... But she wasn't well. I mean, she really was. I mean, it was just a conflation of events, you know. I mean, nobody was to blame. Nobody is to blame in these situations. It's just it's just how much can you take? How much can you put up with? And uh, it was hard. It was really hard. It was really tough. And it was tough for my ma, you know. I mean, my mother ran the show. And that was... Oh, gosh, and that's the problem. I mean, she never got credit for running the show. You know, she was... Exp- I mean, women were just expected to do that. You know, you run the show, let the man go on with it, you know. So that's where the imbalance has been for so long. A lot of people are very unsympathetic to my mother, but... And I could be as well, but I realised it was... It's very hard to be number two. Do you find that you... Because you didn't have much money when you were young, you, you like to shop. Like, you have a bigger wardrobe, don't you, than your wife? Is oh, that terrible. <laughs> And do you feel embarrassed ever by that? Um, no. <laughs> so what do you like in shopping for most? Well, actually, I like shopping uh, for my wife. I mean, I actually like shopping for... She calls me her Jean-Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love that. I love shopping for my wife. I've always liked shopping for women, you know, because, you know, women know how to wear clothes and, 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 and women's clothes are much more interesting than men's clothes. So do you just go shopping down the high street? or? or to... Yeah, I'll go shopping. Oh, well, I'll do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I am one of the people who are when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that's because you didn't have much when you were younger? Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure there's all kinds of reasons for it. Um, but uh, no, I've also just, I like line and look and form, you know. I mean, I love all that. Are you yeah. a natural hoarder then as well, or not? Well, my sister's got a real problem with it. I mean, she's, her house is now a fire zone. They, they won't allow it. my 85-year-old sister. She's oh, terrible what's happened, but she's she's hoarded. It's very interesting. Hoarding's controlling. It's all about control. And I, I think there's an element to me which is a control. I'm a bit of a control freak. And is that because your childhood was so complicated? And yeah, probably. It's probably that's, you know, and, and, and it's also to do with surviving, you know. That, I mean, my daughter, uh, she had problems that way as well. And it's usually, usually a lot of controlling things come from trauma. In my sister's case, it was from being in an, an, an earthquake and in L.A. and being caught in the black box, universal in the elevator where she was tossed around like a peanut. And that sort of freaked her out. And then she became a hoarder. She started to hoard her. And I, I, I think that's the reason, you know. So there are reasons. And it's been very difficult, you know, because she's, she's very sweet, my sister, but she's that crazy about mm-hmm. that stuff. You know, you can't throw anything out. She but goes, for you, right. if you lost your father and then you effectively lost your mother, you need to try and keep control of your environment. Yeah, you do. But also the, the other thing is, yeah... But you also, you've had to learn to let go in circumstances where you wouldn't want to let go. My dad was, I mean, he could play the banjo, but he wasn't really a performer. I mean, my sisters are performers. I mean, my, my second eldest sister has got a wonderful singing voice. And, of course, 
she's disappointed because she never did anything with her. And that, that's the thing that, you know, I realised that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to waste any time, you know, because I could see that. I mean, I was wise enough in a way and blessed enough to see how people start blaming their lives and saying, oh, I should have done it, should have, could have, would have, you know, and I don't go for any should have, could have, would have. I just say, do it, you know. Is that, do you think, having survived, you just want to get on and it gives you determination to yeah. succeed? Yeah, you just get on, you know, and you... You know, and you, you know, especially in this game, it's a, it's a, it's a tough game, and it's very, you know, and it goes in these waves. You know, it's not, it's not as steady. And I'm, I mean, touch wood. I mean, I'm now at a time in my career where I'm doing, and I always knew. You see, people used to say to me when I was younger, but I kind of knew it that it was going to be the long haul, that it wasn't about. I mean, I did very well. I was, I did my made my West End debut when I was 21. So I, I did very well. So I've got no, I'm not, I've got no complaints. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted to be doing it at this age. That's when, because I also I knew that the parts were more interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and life's experience is much better. And how much do you think you draw on your background and your childhood in all your roles? Well. Uh, to a, a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I, I only in terms of comparison. I mean, I couldn't play everything from that point of view. But I, yeah. I mean, it, it, it it's given me an understanding of certain things that people and uh, and I am a socialist. Uh, I'm probably a Marxist. I'm probably leaning that way. Does it bother you that there are so many posh boys? In it bothers me a lot because we think it is. Well, it's it's all to do with you know I'm I'm guilty as much as anybody else. I sent my son to uh, St Paul's and my daughter, she went to Cheltenham Ladies College. <laughs> you know, you know. Can you believe and why it? is that? Because he wanted to give them every advantage. Well, it's because I mar I married a toff, <laughs> <laughs> or a would be toff. You know, my first wife was very organised, very Caroline Burt. Her father was a GP, and her mother was a, a Glasgow opportunist of the first order. You know who has used her beauty and looks to get wherever she could and finally married my ex-lovely father-in-law, who was a dear man, Clive Burt. But it was that value system, you know, we've got to make sure that the kids get the proper education. And of course, I, was, I didn't know any better. You know, I just, I was as opportunist as the next. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. And they had a good education. But at the same time, it causes the fissures in our, you know, we're a small country. You know, we should be like Finland or Norway. You know, we should be taking care of our people and making sure that we are working as a small unit. And do you put the royals into that same sense of entitlement? Didn't you once meet Princess Margaret? I did, yeah. What I, happened? I got touched up. Yeah. <laughs> when? She, she um, <laughs> she, un I, 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 it was 1969, I was doing, I was 23. And I was, you know, not bad looking <laughs> when I was 23. <laughs> and uh, I came to late to this um, function. It was in Alan Bates's dressing room at the Royal Court. And I came late and I'd washed my hair and I was kind of glistening and wet. And I was wearing this red button-up shirt, but I was, I was sort of unbuttoned about here. And I rushed in and I found myself with Margaret. And she was there being very sort of, oh, you're so wonderfully, wonderfully... Hooded. 
<laughs> I wanted to know more and more about you. Your your performance. You were so hooded. She kept going on about who, how hooded I was. And I'm going, well, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And then she said, ah, and it's your birthday, I believe. I said, yeah, yeah, it's my birthday. She said, oh, good. Oh, oh is this the shirt? I said, shirt. She said, oh, I said, yeah, Lindsay bought me this for birthday. And she, she went, oh, oh, what a lovely shirt. And then she started putting her hand in here. <gasps> Did you say anything? I, I was dumbfounded. <laughs> I was dumbfounded. I couldn't say anything. I eventually said, excuse me, man, I have to go. But, you know, after she, she didn't quite get as far as my nipple, but she nearly got there. <laughs> so I, I, I beat a hasty retreat. And Jimmy Bolam, who was there, he witnessed the whole thing. He just go, oh, God, oh, you're in there, you're in there. Oh, and I went, oh, God. Do you think you should have been in the crown then as well or not? Me? No. No, no I'm in the crown because I... I mean, that, like, that was the last thing in the world I would ever watch was The Crown. And I think it's one of the best things ever. <laughs> That's the irony of it. Because you see them as human beings, you know, because they are human beings. They're flawed human beings. And, and you can't knock the Queen. She is an extraordinary woman and she's done an extraordinary job from a terrible value system, you know, that they're perpetrating. The, I mean, almost the notion of the divine right of kings, not bollocks you know are we too obsessed by class then and by we're a feudal we're feudal we're still a feudal system it's not gone away do you think one reason succession's been so successful is that it does tap into this sense that there's one rule for the rich and powerful i think that's exactly why i think it i mean it's ironic you know i'm doing the show i'm playing somebody who (laughs) i totally abhor you know (laughs) Uh, I don't totally abhor him, but I do abhor him. Yeah, I abhor his values. But also, I think these are values that have been instilled from the word go. I mean, I think he is the product of of the get rich idea, of the product of how you make the best of your circumstances. In the way I did, but he makes it from a very right-wing point of view, and I made it from a very left-wing point of view. But it's understandable. And it's understandable how people are affected. And of course, it hits a, a zeitgeist of the moment of this, this of the entitlement. These horrible people like Jared Kushner and his missus and these people who are doing such damage, who have no idea, you know, no idea what's going on. And in some ways, the succession then more like the Trump administration and the Trump family, do you think? Than no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a it, it, no, because they're, they're more intelligent. I, well, the children aren't, but the father is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's more intelligent. Mm-hmm. I think he's more intelligent than Trump. He's a nihilist, actually, and that's his real danger. He doesn't really care. He's a nihilist because he also believes that the human experiment is disappointing. And and he and I agree. There's no, there's nothing to choose. You know, how has it got this bad? I believe we have to do radical things to change it. He believes, let the ship sink. Do you ever feel guilty that you're torturing all the family in succession? Or do you actually rather no. enjoy it? I don't enjoy it. I, I, I want them to step up to the plate. I want them to step into their power. And none of them have done it. <laughs> so are you deeply disappointed in them all? Terribly disappointed. They are disappointing. They really are, you know, because they they won't do it. And... Kendall has finally now made a stab at something, you know, which is to destroy his father. Good luck to him. I hope it goes well. Uh, but, 
you know, I, 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 that's what's so interesting about he's, and I think that's why people, because people really do like Logan. Mm. They really do like Logan because they go, oh, this man. And it is because it, 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 you really present something on the horns of a dilemma, you know, a powerful man who can do powerful things, but who is a nightmare, you know, just in terms of, um, you know, his, um, his virtue. Is it true know? that people come up to you at parties and ask you to swear at them? All the time. <laughs> I was at a Me Too meeting and uh, with uh, Ronan Farrell at a book club that my friend Rosanna Arquette had organised and she said, will you come? I said, sure. So I came and I watched this very serious evening and then afterwards when it finished, suddenly I found myself surrounded by a bunch of women and um, perhaps two asked me the inevitable question, could I video telling me to off? <sighs> and I went, is that really appropriate at a Me Too evening? But I just also think it's indicative of the confusion that we're in. Is it strange your children have had such a different life from you? Well, it is, but it, but it's also part of, you know, their tra trajectory is part of what my trajectory was and their father's. I think it's not, I'm, I'm not easy as a father. I think I'm fairly... Uh, <laughs> very difficult to pin down, I think, a lot of the time. Do you uh, shout at all or not? Oh, terrible shout. <laughs> you know, terrible. I, I, I don't shout as much now as I used to, but when I was younger, I was, I was always shouting. And is that more your mother than your father then? Yeah. My father never shouted. Mm. My father never raised his voice. My mother did. I mean, my mother ran the show, and that was... Oh, gosh, and that's the problem. I mean, she never got credit for running the show. You know, she was expected. I mean, women were just expected to do that. You know, you run the show, let the man go on with it, you know. So that's where the imbalance has been for so long. And I think those imbalances get confused in the sexual area. But that, just just politically, what women would, in terms of how they were made to be servants, as much as anything else, I just feel is awful. <laughs> So with your children, do you spoil them or do you want them to stand on their own two feet? I kind of want them to stand on their own two feet. I'll spoil them occasionally, but I kind of want them to really, you know, know that they have to earn what they do. I mean, in circumstance, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe that everybody should be under the thumb. I think there should be a certain amount of leeway in, in life. And, you know, and as long as they're not monsters. And my kids are actually very sweet. They're very nice kids. They have their problems um, and their problems are their problems. But I've always felt, I felt that with my older children that one of the things I, I think is a great advantage is that I don't, they don't owe me anything. And their dad and that, you know, there's a sort of, you know, that happened. But they don't owe me anything, and I never ever want them, I never wanted them to feel that they're bound in some way. I, you know, I've always wanted my kids to be free. I mean, I just, I resent, I resent, I reject them at a certain point. You know, just say, get on with it. You know, you do it. You do what you do. You know, I, I'm, I'm not here. Don't dwell. Keep going. Keep moving. Keep trucking. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, 
the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Brian Cox. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.